Welcome to Season 2 of Game Design Unboxed on the No Direction Network. Danielle talks to tabletop game designers about the games they've made. Together, they unbox how the game went from inspiration to publication. Thank you for joining me, Danielle, for Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 42, Eons and Legacy of Gravehold. Today, we are joined by Sydney Engelstein, a designer who worked on various Eons ends, Dragon and the Flagon, Space Cadets, Survive the Space Attack, Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition, and gosh, so many other games. Sydney, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Of course. And we always start out with how did you get into the game design community? Uh, I have, uh, I think, a bit of a unique story, though. It seems like it's becoming less and less unique as the years go on. Uh, My dad was actually a board game collector uh, for years before I was even born. So by the time I hit the scene, he had, you know, a basement full of like a thousand different board games. And I grew up playing all of them. I never played the normal kind of trouble, sorry, Monopoly. Or if I did only when I was over at friends' houses, I went straight into uh, the more gamer games and we would go to conventions and I would play games at conventions and meet people in the industry at conventions. And so I just feel like I've always been in, I've always been in the industry my entire life, even before I was actually working uh, as part of it. It's so funny. How old were you when you went to your first convention? Uh, well, uh, if you don't count in utero, I think I was one. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. You were like born and bred into the industry. I, I love really have like the heir of the board game industry. I was raised by the entire board gaming community. And yet somehow I'm, you know, somewhat well adjusted in spite of that. <laughs> nice. Oh my gosh. So then when did you start designing games? Uh, So when I was uh, in middle school, around like 13, maybe 14, so the beginning of high school, uh, my uh, dad became interested in trying to design his own game. And he involved my brother, uh, who's two years older than me. And he and my brother designed a game uh, called The Ares Project, uh, which they got published uh, through Z-Man Games. And I was not involved in the design of that project, but they were working on this game for years and years. And I did a ton of playtesting. You know, everywhere we went, we were playtesting the Ares project. Um, And so it was very exciting to see it actually come out. And immediately my brother and dad were like, we had so much fun with that last one. We want to do another game. And I said, can I be in from the beginning on this one because I got so involved in the playtesting of Aries Project by the end. Um, and so I jumped in on uh, what eventually was Space Cadets uh, that came out when I was 16, but I probably started working on it more when I was like 15. Um, so pretty young. Uh, yeah, I would definitely say young. Younger than most designers. Well, then we'll switch gears and go over to Eon's End. So this is a base game, multiple expansions. In this particular episode, we are going to go over mostly your favorite one that you said you worked on, which was Legacy of Gravehold. Would you mind telling people how the original game is played and then also what Legacy of Gravehold adds to it? Yeah, so I am not the designer of Aeon's End. That is Kevin Riley, uh, and he 
publish that game with action phase and indie boards and cards many years ago now. And it was just a smash hit. So more and more expansions have come out. And when I got hired on by indie boards and cards, they were like, the majority of your time at this job is going to be working on new Aeons and content because it's one of our most popular games with a huge following. So um, that's how I got involved uh, in the scene, but I can't claim credit for the original design. Uh, Basically, it's a um, cooperative deck building game. So it has a set market like Dominion, but everyone is playing their own unique mage who has a unique starting hand and deck composition and a unique ability that they can trigger over the course of the game. All of these mages are working together to fight against a big monster called a nemesis who has its own deck of a mix between uh, generic and unique cards that help it have some kind of gimmick that requires you to fight it in a different way than all other Aeons and Nemeses. So the Uh, The gameplay really changes based on what character you are, what cards you have in the market, and also uh, what the boss is throwing at you in terms of how you defeat them. Uh, The thing that makes Aeon's End really unique amongst deck builders, uh, aside from all of that customization and flexibility of gameplay, is that uh, when you run out of cards to draw in your deck, you don't shuffle your discard pile. You actually take your discard pile, you flip it entirely over so that you're going to draw your cards in the exact order you discarded them, which means that when you're discarding cards, when you're buying new cards into your discard pile, you have complete control over that strategy and over what combos you're putting together, thinking ahead on, okay, how much money am I going to have next turn and the turn after that and the turn after that. So the skill cap for players, you know, how much of them, their uh, intellect they can bring to fighting off the boss is really, really high compared to most other deck builders where you can build the best deck you possibly can with all those combo pieces in it, but it's still luck of the draw if you get them at the same time. Aeon's End gives players a lot more control, which I think is is part of why it's so popular. And for like a starting player, what are you given as far as like your starting hand or deck? So there's two basic cards, crystals, which generate one money, and sparks, which gen- uh, which do one damage when they're cast at the boss or a minion. Um, every mage has their own uh, composition of how many crystals and sparks they have and in their hand or in their deck. And then every mage has at least one sometimes more, sometimes a lot more unique cards that begin in their hand or deck uh, that will do something just for that mage. Usually it will play into their identity because unlike some deck builders where everyone is starting from zero in Aeon's End, mages have identities and roles and certain things they're better at than other mages. And since it's cooperative, oftentimes it's a good idea to bring mages who are good at different things. So it falls into kind of your normal, you know, MMORPG party with some mages are DPS and are really good at getting a lot of spells. And some mages, you know, they can buy 
gems which produce money they can buy money producers the whole game and just have really high money turns which in a normal deck builder where your deck has to function entirely for itself everyone kind of needs to mix in a similar way but in aeon's end you can specialize and your unique starting cards help you know those mages specialize in different ways so you can find one that meshes with your desired play style. That's really cool. Do you have for like a beginner's guide of just like recommendations on first play of which characters to use or do you just kind of let people stumble through that? We put a basically a complexity rating from 1 to 10 on the back of every mage mat. No mage I don't think it's ever going to be a 10 so that we don't cap ourselves out. And I'm not sure if any mage has ever been a one, but the rest of them fall in between there, which is basically just a way for new players to look and see, you know, oh, this is a more complicated strategy to grasp. So I probably shouldn't start with this eight mage. I'll go down here in the two or three, pick them up and they have a very straightforward play style or straightforward unique card that's really easy. Uh, for people to pick up. And then as far as like the market, how is that different from like a game like Dominion? It's pretty similar to a game like Dominion. Uh, All of the piles are the same card down. There's nine of them. Uh, The recommendation is three of them are gems, which is cards that produce money. Uh, Two of them are relics, which are cards with a variety of effects that happen when you play them. And four of them are spells, which deal damage and is what you need in order to kill the boss. Um, But once players become you know, more advanced, they can mix and match these in any way that they want to. Uh, We provide randomizer cards in all the Aeon's End sets so that if you want to, you can mix all the randomizer cards of your set. Each randomizer corresponds to one market card. So you can shuffle up all the gems and reveal three of them and say, okay, these are the three random gems that are going to be in my market for this battle. I need to figure out strategically, you know, what's the best with this randomized market that I made for myself. And that's a very popular way to play. Um, But you can also just pick which cards you want in your market. And for the bosses, is it just completely random? Or do you have it where you go after one, then the second, then the third, and then the fourth, kind of like a legacy game? Yeah, so in the original Aeon's End, it was random. There was a recommended start boss because that boss's deck would come pre-shuffled. And wrapped in shrink so all you had to do is open it and just play the first boss that was how it was for the first two aeons end games the third aeons end game was a legacy aeons end legacy it was creatively titled um so that one obviously has an order and a story that you read along with um um what order you uh get your market cards and fight your bosses in the um Two games after that, Aeon's End New Age and Aeon's End Outcast, they introduced something called the Expedition System, which is kind of like a mini legacy campaign without any of the actual legacy elements like stickers or writing on cards. Basically, there is a little story booklet that comes along with the game and tells you, you know what happened up until this point and what's going on now and where you're going. And it tell it gives you instructions in the story booklet on what to open when. So it'll say, you know, open envelope one, these are your starting mages, open deck one, these are their starting cards. This is your starting market. This is the first boss you fight. You fight it and then 
um, it tells you what, you know, it gives you a little story to move you along to the next boss and to opening more market cards and more mages that you could swap to playing instead. It also um, adds in something called treasures and upgraded basics, which is basically treasures you unlock after each combat that uh, is an outside of your mage's original design extra bonus that they can get. So a new unique starter card or a card with a passive bonus that helps everyone on the team. And that helps you get stronger from fight to fight as the four battle expedition goes on. Upgraded basics are the same thing for nemeses. They get mixed into nemesis decks to make them stronger so that it continues to be a challenge in spite of the fact that you have your uh, characters leveling up in a way. So even though... Uh, it's not a legacy game, you still feel like you're following this story and actually watching your mages get stronger uh, while the nemeses also get scarier and scarier. By scarier, do you just mean like more difficult to defeat or are they like actually getting more terrifying looking? <laughs> well, I think it's very much a matter of opinion which nemeses look scarier to which people. Um, we... Uh, have some that are under fierce debate. I made a nemesis who's a bunny rabbit, um, but he's like a giant, skinless, man-sized bunny rabbit with four ears that open into like slavering, teeth-filled maws. And some people find it very adorable. Others don't. So, you know, <laughs> that's the question. Okay. Interesting. So then as one of the designers to work on all the expansions, do you get to choose like the backstory and like write all the information on the cards? Because I know you do a lot more flavor text than some other deck builders for this game. Yeah, I am actually the head writer uh, for the Aeon Zen series now. Um, obviously, I wasn't there for the original Aeon Zen games, but I joined on during Aeon Zen New Age, which was the first uh, installment of that expedition system I told you about. So me and Kevin Riley, the original designer, worked together to write the stories that go along with those expeditions. And in addition to that, I wrote all the cards have little bits of flavor text on the bottom of them that helps flesh out the world. All the mages have their own personal story on the back of their mats, and all the nemeses have their own story on the back of their mats, too. So there's a bunch of different ways to pick up uh, the story and the information about this world. Before the original Aeons and Legacy, the flavor text on the cards, the Mage Matt stories, and the Nemesis Matt stories were the only... You had to sort of piece together what was going on from these scattered accounts. But now with the expedition system, uh, there's a real active story to follow along with in addition to those little you know, character dramas. So we like to try and tie things in from one boss to another you know the reason i made a rabbit boss in the first place is because in the previous game one of the bosses was a mad scientist who talked about how he did his initial experiments on a bunny but he accidentally lost it uh, and he has no idea where the bunny he was experimenting on went so i think a lot of people were like oh it's the bunny he came back and that's fun because it makes it feel like a tied in universe, even if we're kind of re um, presenting whole new characters and whole new bosses every box that comes out. That's so interesting. Do you find it more enjoyable to like, as a designer, work on mechanics or doing more kind of the like story driven stuff that you just mentioned? 
Um, it's interesting because I find them pretty entangled uh, for a lot of my favorite characters and my favorite bosses. Um, usually it's kind of a delicious cookie sandwich where first we talk about what's going to be the overarching plot here or what pieces of plot and pieces of character do we want to make sure get in. And then we try and design something that would suit those that narrative um and then after the design is honed you know to make sure that the gameplay works well first and foremost um then we change the narrative to fit how the gameplay works really well and make sure that it feels like the story is appropriate for the way that the boss fights or the way that the characters um are but i i think that you know, not all of our bosses were pre-planned. Sometimes it's just like, and then you'll fight some kind of monster comes out of the woods so we can just design any kind of boss. And those are obviously also cool. But I think whenever we say, okay, in this battle, you know, something is, you know, pulling out the energy and the souls. How do we represent that in gameplay? Feels more satisfying when we find something that really does feel like it represents that in gameplay. And I'm like, oh, cool. This is really coming to life instead of just being mechanics that have story tacked onto them once they're completed. I 100% agree. I think it's great when you can actually mesh the two together as far as like the charging abilities, how does that work in the gameplay? Uh, so uh, in Aeon's End, cards aren't the only thing you can spend your money on on your turn. Um, you also uh, have these things called breaches, which is basically like spell slots. Uh, you have um, some of them start open, some of them start closed. You can only attack with a spell by first prepping it, putting it down on a breach in front of you. And then the turn after that, every spell that's on breaches in front of you can be cast at the boss. So you need to spend money to gain more breaches, to open more breaches so that you can put more spells in your deck um, because you can't just cast every spell that you draw. The other thing you can spend your money on is charges, which cost $2, and every mage has their own amount of charges that their ability costs. So it ranges generally from four to six um, charges. So you can gain them over the course of turns. You know, you don't need to have $8 to do a four charge ability. You can have $2 on one turn, $2 on the next, $4 on the turn after that. And then you can activate your ability, which is just printed on your mat and will say any kind of thing. There's all manner of abilities. They range very, very widely. Uh, but that is something that a lot of times mages, you know, shift from gaining more cards into using their ability more often because obviously the later in the game it goes, the less likely these cards are to come back around into your hand and have an impact. But we didn't want uh, your money to just run out of usefulness partway through the game. Totally makes sense. As far as like the bosses, do they all mechanically work different as well? Or is it kind of like a set copy paste and just kind of change up some stats? Uh, they are all mechanically unique, though they all trend around the same uh, idea of having a Nemesis deck. So yeah. the Nemesis deck is tiered into three different tiers. 
tier one, tier two, and tier three, obviously. And three cards in each of those tiers, usually. Uh, I can't speak for every boss because, again, there's lots of differences. Usually, there's nine unique boss cards that come with that boss or that come with that nemesis. Um, Three in tier one, three in tier two, three in tier three. And then you augment that with basic nemesis cards, which are generic minions, generic attacks and stuff that will just do, you know, certain amount of player damage, certain amount of... um, you know, attacking your powers and powering you down, but won't have any of the boss specific effects on them. You know, they won't reference anything that the boss has. Um, But then in addition to that deck, even though every nemesis is just when their turn comes up, draw the top card of that deck and put it into play. Um, a lot, a lot of nemeses have side decks, have side mats, have, you know, boards or tokens or something that is happening outside of the deck uh, that really gives them their own identity. So it's definitely not just a reskin with different numbers. They all will require different strategies in order to be beaten and uh, attack you in very unique ways. <laughs> How do you go about balancing that? <laughs> a lot of playtesting, generally. Um, it helps that we have the basic Nemesis cards, so we can pull already printed basic Nemesis cards and say this is, you know, about how much the boss is going to do. Then we throw the gimmick on top um, because every Nemesis has an effect called Unleash, uh, which does something different for every Nemesis. That way, the basic cards can still cause the nemesis to do their unique thing. So basic cards will just say unleash, and then your nemesis will tell you what unleash means for this specific nemesis. Uh, So we can make a nemesis deck without any of their unique cards, just a gimmick, and the basic cards will still make it happen. And then from there, we say, okay this didn't happen enough you know we wanted to see this track move a lot farther than that or whoa the track went way too fast and we can uh scale the unique cards to fill in the gaps on how how difficult we want the boss to be but then it's a lot of play the game change the numbers play the game with different mages change the numbers again (laughs) play the game over and over and over again add different player accounts too Yep, that's always been my least favorite part of game design. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Man, yeah, that's about 90% of what I do with my weeks. I 100% believe that. I've told people that a game that I'm working on, I'm like, yeah, I play Tessa like on average 13 times a week. And they're like, how do you not want to beat your head again? So I'm like, well, depends on the week. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we generally find we can play about five to six games a day uh, before we have to do anything else it's difficult you know it doesn't seem like it's going to be exhausting uh because you're just playing a game but you look up from that fifth game uh and you your whole head hurts you're like oh my god i can't you know focus well enough to make informed um critiques about these you know different cards that are coming at us because my eyes are blurring over on the card uh text so you need to do something else so how does your playtesting work? Because do you mostly do internal with like indie boards and cards or do you bring yes. outsiders? Walk we me through generally that. do internal testing um, or we do internal testing for the longest period of time until it's all designed. Uh, and only once we 
feel like we have it all, then we start external playtesting. We send out um, TTS mod or physical copies of the game to our playtesting network and get their feedback. And then sometimes there's a bit more internal playtesting if we aren't 100% sure we agree with what they said, you know, or they said something, we agreed, we changed it, then we want to check it again. Um, But there are only uh, really two of us um, on and off uh, some other people who live in our area, friends of ours, um, co-workers who are in the area will play with us so that we can hit higher uh, you know, player counts because my co-designer Nick and I can do two-player easy, but then we have to start recruiting around to hit three-player and four-player. Um, so generally we balance everything at two-player and then we find volunteers or... Um, part-time workers to play test with us uh, for the higher player counts. That's amazing. You actually hire part-time workers to help play test. Yep. Uh, we um, do like an hourly rate um, for people who will come over and uh, just be a body play testing with us. I'm not going to lie. As like a kid or a teenager or college student, I would have loved that as my part-time gig. Yeah, it's a pretty sweet gig. You get to hang out with me and Nick. So like that's a real win. Um, I don't know. I've never thought about it. We've always found enough people just of like people we know in our area uh, that we've never really had to advertise it. Yeah, I was going to say, I was like, I've never heard of it, but that's awesome. And it does sound like it would be a perk to work with both of you. (laughs) I don't know. We sing a lot of Taylor Swift. That annoys a lot of people. (laughs) It's not what I would have imagined as a soundtrack for this game, but you know what? That's great. Whatever makes it work. It's Nick's house. It's Nick's rules. And his favorite is T-Swift or Olivia Rodriguez. So that's what we locked down, put it on shuffle and repeat for weeks at a time. Okay, you know what? It seems to be working. The game's selling. It's got a crazy amount of expansions and just like different, I guess, extended. Yeah, I was like, what do you even call it? Like just part of the same world? If it's not an expansion, it's just like different standalone games, a part of the same universe. Yeah, maybe that's my advice for aspiring game designers is get more Taylor Swift on in the background very inspiring oh, is that really going to be your advice for no, game designers no <laughs> no i do most of my nemesis design in my sleep i have i dream about it and then i come to poor nick and i start blathering on about all this stuff i dreamed about and he tries to make sense of it and turn it into something we can actually play test that's so interesting. I started jotting down my nightmares when I was just really stressed out at a period of my life. And I also got inspired to start working on a game. So I was like, maybe that is the right way to do you it. Got it. Well, I feel like like we were talking about with having the narrative of the fight come first and then the mechanics. There's something about, you know, understanding the visceral feeling that you want the nemesis to give you or, or the gameplay to give you in a dream that you can't get when you're trying to think of it in in your waking hours. I don't know, though. I was going to say, are you able to charge for sleeping hours if you're doing all that work at night? (laughs) Oh, man, I wish. I should look into that. I was going to say, you're just a really good employee, clearly. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I'm on a salary anyway, so I should get overtime. Oh, there you go. Oh, my goodness. So for like the base game, how many of the like nemeses and mages are included? And then for like all the future games, how many? Um, I believe for the original, I would have to look this up to be 100% sure. It's four bosses, six mages. Okay. Um, then most of the expansions kind of follow that. Most, Almost all the expansions have four nemeses in them. Some of them have higher number of mages. It varies from like six to eight generally. Um, and then we always come out with expansions in waves. So there will be one standalone expansion that has all the bits and tokens that you need in order to play a game, a full game of Aeon's End. So you can just own one of those boxes. It doesn't have to be the first one. You know, you can own the fourth big box and play Aeon's End. And then there's also small box expansions which contain one or two mages and one or two nemeses uh, and a handful of new market cards, but not enough market cards for a full market and it's missing all the tokens, you know, so you can't actually play Aeon's End with just one of those small boxes but we release one big box and usually two small boxes all together at the same time so um if you look at one full wave of content uh it's like six to eight nemeses and uh eight to twelve mages uh if you're like backing on kickstarter that's everything that you'll get um from from a year of aeon's end that's impressive how often are you putting this on kickstarter is it like every other year every year we do it every year uh we'll probably be uh delaying our cycle slightly with the uh production and shipping um circumstances in the world and in china right now uh it's slowing down our like pace but we still try and have an aeon zen product every year even if it's not going to be at the same time each year you know it, it used to be consistently always the same month and now it's being pushed a little later in the year but we we um keep up a pretty um quick schedule with them well, it sounds like if you keep dreaming about it, you're basically working 24-7. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, basically, as long as people want more Aeon's End, we can come up with more. Um, That's honestly so impressive. And I'm glad that people keep wanting more because it's definitely my favorite uh, project to work on. Um, I could just play it over and over. And I do, and I have. So it's lucky that I can play it over and over. But I really earnestly love it that much that I don't even mind that I literally play it 25 times a week. I don't care. (laughs) I still love it every time I play. That's so amazing. And so when I'd asked you initially, like which one you wanted to focus on and you chose Legacy of Gravehold, why is that the like special one that you wanted as like the title of the episode? Um, so Legacy of Gravehold is the sixth big box um, expansion. It is one of the ones I was lead designer on. So obviously that's a big part of it. And it's the first one that I really felt a sense of ownership of. I, I came, I joined the company uh, during Aeon's End, the New Age, which is the fourth 
big box expansion. And I helped with the writing. As I said, I did the expedition narrative and I play tested it some, but almost everything was complete. I was playtesting already designed mages, already designed nemeses. Uh, all the art had already happened. So I was taking existing characters and making up stories for them rather than starting from the story and then designing the character. So as much as I love Aeons and the New Age, it definitely wasn't my design. Then the one after that, the fifth big box, Aeons and Outcasts, that was the first one I was there from the very beginning. And I loved it a great deal. I got to pitch my idea for the story before we started designing. So I said, I want, you know, to venture into the world where the monsters are from and, you know, bring along this important character and so on and so on. And then we designed, you know, which characters we were going to design based on that. Um, but at the same time, it was my first Aeon's End project that I was, you know, designing. And uh, Kevin and Nick had designed all the Aeon's End before that. So I you know, had a voice in it, but I, I wasn't as confident. I was definitely still watching and learning and coming up with an idea here or there. You know, I um, have one nemesis in that set that I feel like I really influenced the design. I really came up with the idea myself, but it was still a team effort. Then the sixth one, and then Legacy of Gravehold, uh, at this point, uh, Kevin Riley, the original designer, he decided he um, wanted to take a step back from design. He um, decided he wanted to pursue his interests in a different field and that he wouldn't have the time and energy to do full-time design on Aeon's End anymore. He ended up helping us with playtesting later on, but this was our first box that it was just me and Nick designing, the two of us, and... It was 2020. It was quarantine. Um, and all the conventions shut down. And so we had just an unprecedented amount of time to work on uh, the new Aeon's End. Weeks that we normally lost to conventions, we had uh, development time. And so Nick, really, he is an amazing like numbers guy, but he's not uh, as like invested in the story and the like creative side of it. So he came to me, he was like, Sydney, what do you want to do with it? And we'll do it. And I was like, okay, I have an incredibly ambitious idea to do a super big legacy game and bring back all the mages that we've made over the course of the game so that we can like wrap up this storyline I've been writing in a big Captain America Civil War style two um, groups of mages pitted against each other. And he was like, okay, that sounds like insane amount of work, but sure. And so it was really, I I consider it my baby where I um, had the initial idea. And obviously it was a real 50-50 ton of design work between me and Nick, but I, I felt like I had stepped into the driver's seat of Aeon's End for the first time. And I was, you know, not afraid to, uh, you know, design mages, design nemeses, come up with totally new mechanics that had never been used before, 
because it was a legacy game, we were able to incorporate a lot of those and push the boundaries of Aeon's End and turn it into something that I I feel incredibly proud of. We didn't initially think we were going to make all the insane stuff that I, I had asked for. You know, we, we were like, uh you know, maybe we can design half the number of mages you want to put in the story and then just balance it so that you can bring old mages back. You know, you can take your old mage bats and play with them in this game. That way everyone feels involved. And then we just kept designing and kept designing and he ended up with 22 unique mages and 13 unique nemeses, which is basically twice the amount of any other Aeon's End game. Um, so it was basically like my personal love letter to Aeon's End itself and all the fans and everything that I wanted it to have is in there. I don't know. I just, you can hear me smiling. I love the legacy of Great Wolves. No, yeah. Oh my gosh. (laughs) That just sounds like insanity to me personally. But the fact that you got all that, like way to go. You, you didn't get in the driver's seat. You're like, I'll take the fast car. And you jumped in and you just zoomed. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what a lot of people had asked for, um, on, from the previous legacy game was this feeling that like you win a game, you lose a game. It doesn't actually impact anything. You're just kind of, kind of playing along with this story. And I was like, can we do a branching narrative where you actually make all these decisions and it really changes based on how well you do in fights? And I don't know if it went as far as it possibly could have because I was very quickly hit with the realities of how much writing a branching storyline required. Like as soon as you make one branch, there's like 20 extra pages that need to be added to the narrative booklet. But it's still, it's it's far more of an immersive experience than any other Ancent has been so far. And as the, you know, writer, um, I was very invested in trying to give people the feeling that these characters who it's the last time we'll really see any of these characters because this is the culmination of the storyline that you get to play with any character that you loved from over the course of the game and give them a satisfying conclusion. So if I were to, as like a new player who's never played any of the games, would they be able to jump into Legacy of Gravehold or would they have to play through all the other games before trying out this one? Uh, It depends on um, the player. Uh, For one, it's definitely more complicated than other sets. Necessarily, the more Aeon's End we come out with, the more intricate the Mage and Nemesis and card designs have to be in order to keep finding new design space. Generally, they have more unique cards, more complicated abilities. Um, not all of them, but uh, as a general um, statement, the Mages and Nemeses in Legacy of Gravehold are some of the more highly advanced ones that we've created. The second thing is there is a slip of paper that teaches you about the story so far before it. But if you're a real Aeon's End buff uh, and want to experience the world up until that point, it is um, definitely jumping you, dropping you into a lot of, you know, storytelling and dialogue that is about stuff you don't have 
too clear an idea about. So generally, uh, for a brand new player, we like to recommend the original Aeons and Legacy. Aeons and Legacy, uh, which was the third big box installment, and in some ways is an even better beginner experience than the original Aeons and Box. Um, Partially, because that's where the story starts. So if you are interested in the story of the Aeons and Universe, starting with Legacy is perfect. And secondly, because in the original Legacy, the legacy element of it was the fact that you started with a completely blank character. We didn't design unique mages with unique starting cards and unique abilities in Legacy. We gave you a blank character, and over the course of the uh, whole game, you add your own stickers to your cards and your ability to create you know, someone really unique and your own. Uh, which is, one, super fun, and two, um, makes the first couple of games of Aeon's End you play incredibly simple. It takes away a lot of the options of the uh, a normal Aeon's End game and pairs it down to the basics. So um, playing the first and second game of Aeon's End is kind of like a, uh, of Aeon's End Legacy, it's kind of like a tutorial that slowly introduces concepts to you and makes things more complex the farther into the game you go. By game three, you're already playing normal Aeon's End. It's not like Aeon's End Legacy is a beginner experience that advanced players would feel bored by, but it does do a good job of not overwhelming brand new players with a ton of rules because Aeon's End is definitely a complex game. Oh yeah, it sounds like the Legacy one would be a good start then. I'll need to check it out because I have not actually played the game quite yet. I've seen people play it though. Uh, It's so fun. I mean, I can tell from just the tone of voice because I love deck builder games and the idea of a cooperative one is very interesting to me. It's funny because I actually, dirty secret, that's not so much of a secret because I tell people very openly, I don't like deck builder games. Um, Or at least, I mean, I hadn't played that many because... The first ones I played, I didn't like, so I never really sought them out again. Um, So when I was applying for my job at Indie Boards and Cards and they sent me a copy of Anne's End and said, learn to play this because it's going to be a large portion of your job. Uh, And I sat down, I opened the rule book, I went, oh no, it's a deck building game. A large portion of my job is going to be playing a deck building game? That's my least favorite genre of game. But then when I actually started playing it, I was shocked because some of the things I dislike about deck building games is one, the fact that generally, especially in a set market, which is what I had the most experience with, like Dominion, um, everyone kind of can see hypothetically the best strategy you know there is probably cards that are better than others and it's just about who draws their money cards in the right configuration and fast enough to get those cards and who draws those cards together in the best configuration to do well so it felt like everyone was competing for the same resources uh which obviously Aeon's End is cooperative, so you're not competing for the same resources. But also, all of the mages being unique means that cards have different values for different mages. There isn't just a card that's better than all the other cards in the market for every single character. Um, so you were really freed up to build your deck how you wanted it instead of feeling like, oh, I'm building the same deck everyone else is. 
And then the other thing I I struggled with with deck builders is they a lot of them have that point where you have to transition from making your deck good into making your deck profitable. To use Dominion as the obvious example, uh, you need to see that pivot point where you start buying victory points into your deck even though they're dead cards, that's how you win the game. So by the end of the game, or from, you know, the ending area to the end of the game, all the last bits, your deck is actually getting less and less efficient because you're filling it with these cards that you need, but don't do anything. Um, And I was never good (laughs) at telling when that point was. I was always too late or too early, and that frustrated me. But in Aeon's End the ending point, the goal, is totally external to your deck. You could never buy cards into your deck and hypothetically beat Aeon, a game of Aeon's End if, you're, if your team's doing well or you have a specific strategy. You could buy one card into your deck and do really well with it, uh, which is a challenge some of our uh, fans have taken on. But um, uh, your deck will only ever get better or stay as good as it is because it just has to run faster and faster and better and better until the boss is dead. And that's a totally external goal from your deck. So you never have to feel like you're wasting your own time or slowing down your engine. You get to enjoy watching it run. Uh, so that, I think, is some of the ways that I, I really like Aeon's End, whereas other deck builders, not so much my genre. I can definitely see that. I know that I've been frustrated before where I'm like shuffling my deck and it's completely randomized. And then I just, you know, I'm either like, yeah, this is an amazing hand or like, oh, damn it, got a shit hand. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I'm not saying you don't have amazing hands and shit hands in Aeon's End because sometimes your cards will get clumped in weird ways. But I am saying there's no one to blame but yourself. (laughs) That's true. That's true. You get to choose how you're discarding. Mm That's so funny. So then, well, you've been working on just all of these different projects as far as Aeon's End goes. Do you have a favorite and a least favorite experience in that journey? I don't know if I can think of anything off my head. No terrible playtests, no review where some (laughs) fan was like, how could you do this? Oh, I mean, I'm sure there's that. Um, There is. uh, So in Aeon's End Legacy of Gravehold, um, one of the things, so I said it's a civil war is the the general storyline. So there's two sides, Gravehold and Azer. Um, Gravehold sort of represents the mages who think tradition will keep us safe and, you know, we don't want to experiment with dangerous magics because that's how people get hurt. That's what, you know, um, destroyed our last city. You know, it's too dangerous and it's just going to get our people killed. We want to protect each other. And then Azer is like, listen, if we never experiment with dangerous magics, maybe, you know, things could get worse, but they could also get better. And you're never giving us the opportunity to get better if you restrict our personal freedoms and kick out anyone who, you know, uses magic that you don't approve of. So that's kind of the, the internal debate of Legacy of Gravehold. And so I thought it would be really cool to have those two sides. You can play them in whichever order you want. There's an Azer booklet and there's a Gravehold booklet. Um, and both of them contain the storylines for both Azer and Gravehold. So in the Azer booklet, you play, you, you see Azer's side, you play through all four games of Azer's side, and then you play through all four games of Gravehold's side. So your decisions 
as Azer will impact the games you play as Gravehold. In the Gravehold booklet, you play all of Gravehold, then you play all of Azer. So the decisions you make as Gravehold will impact Azer. So they do have differences to them because you'll have different characters and markets when you fight certain things. Um, but you do still get to see all the content. It's not like you only play as half the groups. Uh, and there was a review that was like, I really love the Azer like philosophy and so when I got to the halfway point of the Azer booklet and it said, put everything away and start playing Gravefold, I just stopped playing the game and I put it all away forever. I don't want to play the other side. And I was like, really? Because I just thought I was giving people more options, but so many of them were like frustrated by the idea of having to pick which group they played, but then also play the other side. And I was like... Here I thought, you know, I could have just told the story linearly, but why not mix things up and make it a more unique play experience? But I guess um, people don't like to be confused or misled as to what their gameplay experience is going to be. I don't know. I was going to say, yeah, because that sounds so much more interesting. But I guess that also just like comes down to humanity. We normally pick sides and you maybe can't always see the other side. So it's interesting that your game almost forces you to do it, which I think personally is cool. It comes together in the end. So you play um, one side, then you play the other side, and then it asks you to pick which side you want to play for the final confrontation. You know, which side do you want to represent after you've heard everything about each side, you know, and their philosophies. But that isn't, you know, broadcast. Like, the guy who stopped before he played the other side, he didn't know he was going to get a chance to still pick Azer. He was like, oh, I don't want to play Gravehold at all, which... I had not anticipated. So like other legacy games, is it once you play through both sides, like the whole game, you're done? Or is it kind of like Machu Cora Legacy where you can kind of take some of that and continue playing it as its own game later on? Well, all of our Aeon Zen content from every single box and every single expansion is cross compatible. So you can take bosses out of the fourth box, play against them with mages from the first box, with market cards from the second box, etc. Uh, so we obviously wanted to stick with that for Legacy of Greyfold, and we made sure that all the mages and almost all of the nemeses and almost all of the market cards, with the exception of a few really legacy specific ones, um, you can take them out of the box and play them with the rest of your Aeon's End content. So the legacy game itself is done once it's done being played, but uh, you now have expansions to your collection, your Aeon's End collection that you can mix and match and play with in all different kinds of ways. So it's basically like, if even if you don't like Legacy, Legacy of Gravehold is the biggest Aeon's End booster pack we've ever come out with. I love that booster pack. That's so great. Uh, So as far as real advice and not putting on T-Swift in the background, (laughs) do you have any like what like one piece of advice for designers Could be new designers, continuing designers? Hmm. I guess this goes on theme with what um, I've been talking about with Aeon's End a little bit. So it's a good piece of advice. Um, You when when you're designing a game, you will have to play it roughly 300 400 times so make sure that you make something that you really love and that should 
go without saying that you really love your game design because if you don't really love it, then no one else is going to love it more than you. You will always love your game the most of anyone. So, but but just like it's like you don't want to just love it. You got to like it. It's you should make a game that's your kind of game, that's up your alley, that's really your niche, you know, that you would want to play a thousand times because you will. And then it'll find people who also love that kind of game and and if you if you love it uh and you enjoy what it is, chances are it's more likely other people will enjoy it. I think that's awesome advice. I also feel like whenever you have kids, if you plan on having kids, you are going to be that kind of mom that's like, I love my baby so much. Like, stay away from my kid. <laughs> it's like, you'll never love him as much as I do. Well, I should hope. I think of it like, like they tell you, you know, with a romantic partner. Love is not enough. You got to like them. You got to want to spend every day with them, even boring days. You got to want to talk about your day with them every day. You got to want to have dinner time conversation every day because you're going to spend a heck of a lot of time with this person. Same thing with a board game. You really got to want to spend a heck of a lot of time with it um, or else it's you're not going to put in the effort you need to. And you're just not going to love it enough to give it the time it deserves. That's so cute and completely explains why I'm still single. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you and me both. So I don't think it would cure all the problems. Well, all right. Well, that's good then. (laughs) Oh, man. I thought you found the secret sauce for a second there. Uh, Well, I will let you know if I start dating someone what the secret sauce is. You'll be the first to hear. Beautiful. We'll start a whole other different podcast very much unrelated to this. Awesome. So do you have any fun projects that are coming up that fans should be looking out for? We are working on the next Astro Knights game right now, which is kind of an Aeon's End spinoff. It uses the same core system as Aeon's End does, but it's a lot faster to set up because it has randomized supply piles and totally unique boss decks. So you can store them um, individually instead of having to create those three tiers and add in the basic cards the way I was talking about with Aeon's End. So it slashes the amount of time it takes to get from box to table and comes with an all new family-friendly, much more upbeat and less creepy horror theme of like Power Ranger vibes in space. Uh, so it's it's super great for getting new players interested in Aeon's End or more casual gamers who, you know, maybe Aeon's End players and their families can play. Um, it's really, really fun. And even though it uses the Aeon's End core system, the changes that we've made have caused the mage or mage they're called knights and bosses designs in this game to be really different than the aeon's end um designs it's definitely not a rehash so uh if people um we have yet to ship the uh first astro knights kickstarter and obviously this wouldn't come out before that ships we just need to work on things really far ahead of schedule because games take a long time but if you're excited about astro knights and you're like man can't wait to play that hope there will be more there sure will be and the theme this time is friendship so oh my god friendship well i was watching uh power rangers because as i said it's kind of power rangers and i was like i know what this game is missing it's the fact that when you're losing a battle 
you believe in yourself and your friends so hard that it happens, you know, you pull through. So how do we put that on cards? So that's what I was going into the design of this with is how can we utilize the power of believing in your friends? Um, so I, I think it's coming out really cool, really fun, uh, very cooperative focused, a real push on teamwork. What's the age range for that one? We mark all our boxes 14 plus for, um, testing reasons of like small parts and choking hazards um so 14 plus technically but i mean i could see more like precocious 10 and 12 year olds picking it up when i was you know 10 i i certainly could have played it easily you would have been like i was a six-year-old that picked this game up (laughs) yeah yeah i i used to have a shirt that said i play games for 12 and over that used to be the baseline 14 plus is serious yeah of course you had that shirt Oh my goodness. I got got it custom made. My dad gave it to me for my birthday. That's adorable. Hey, I mean, my dad made me memorize Shakespeare as a kid and recite it to his friends. So I think that's that's what the creative people got stuck with when you were young. We all have our own traumas. <laughs> nah, I think it made us better in the yeah. long run. No, hey, I love Shakespeare. I went to Shakespeare camp every year as a child. Oh, God. I think our dads might have been friends. <laughs> no, that oh. wasn't forced. I chose to. I requested to go to Shakespeare camp. I was just that nerd. All right. Nope. I would not have requested that. Granted, <laughs> did you get to sword fight? Because I might have requested if sword fighting was a yeah, thing. Yeah, well, it was like a theater camp. We put on productions of Shakespeare plays. It wasn't like a study camp. That makes so much more sense because in my mind, I just imagine like a book club, except it's a camp and it's Shakespeare. (laughs) No, no, it was really fun. It was really fun. I'm a theater kid first, board game nerd second. That's awesome. Good for you. I definitely have gone to like most theater production or like most musicals that have come out in the past few years. So big fan. Nice. All right. Well, for my last question of the show, I'd like to know if magically you could become the designer of like your favorite game, what game would it be? Well, I always say that my favorite game is Jungle Speed, which I feel guilty about because it's not much of a game. Uh, it's more of like it's 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 a dexterity game. But I just love it so much that no other game <laughs> make it high. I don't have as much fun playing any other game but Jungle Speed. Um, it's like a matching game where you have to grab a totem from the center of the table really fast if your card matches anyone else's. And there's always a tournament of it at my local convention. Uh, and um, it always gets incredibly rowdy. We have a saying, it's not Jungle Speed until you see blood. And I would be honored to have brought that into the world. That's awesome. See, I love when someone who designs like harder games are like, yeah, this dexterity game or someone said mousetrap. And I was like, you know what? Honestly, respect. I love it. I mean, whatever causes joy is a great game. Yeah. I find that the longer I spend as a professional game designer, the more I just want to play light games in my free time. I mean, I spend, like I said, you know, I play five games of Aeon's End a day. I don't want to come home and think about, you know, heavy strategy games. I like the ones where I'm just like, let's get our blood flowing. Let's do something goofy. So those are always my favorites. That's very accurate. I'm exactly the same way. I don't tend to play games that last longer than two hours on my personal time anymore. Oh, yeah, same. Well, great. 
Then we'll close out this episode. So thank you for joining us for this episode of Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 42, Aeon Zen, Legacy of Gravehold. And thanks again, Sydney, for joining us. For anyone looking to find you, where can you be reached online? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Tired Wings. Uh, not super active, but if you need to reach me, I'm there. All right. Sounds good. And to find any of the games for Indie Boards and Cards, do they have any? We do have a website. It's not the most recently updated website, but you can look at IndieBoardsAndGames.com or at StrongholdGames.com, which is our sister company. Beautiful. And then I'm your host, Danielle Reynolds. If you're looking to find me on social media, you can check me out on Instagram or Twitter under the username TokenGamer, and that's G-A-Y-M-E-R. And so, yeah, thanks again, Sydney, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. This has been another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out nodirectionpodcast.com. Join us next time.